You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. And again, when you see the Nielsen kids, they're away at Virginia this week. When you see them, corner them and say, what did God do in your life in Ecuador? Um, I know God was up to something. They did a great job. And uh, obviously, Jess, Ty's wife as well, unable to be here this morning, but uh, she would have some things to share as well. But uh, I wanted, our return trip home from Ecuador, Ty, was epic, correct? Our return trip was epic, to say the least. <laughs> okay, so we knew this coming into it, that it was going to be crazy. Uh, we, we left the property, Lasso, at 8 o'clock to get to the airport at 10 o'clock because our flight was at 3.30 a.m., all right? So our plan was just to find a quiet corner of the airport and just hunker down and sleep until our flight at 3.30. But it turns out when we got to the airport that they don't even let you go into the airport until 12.30 a.m. So we kill a few hours playing cards in like this food court area just waiting till 12.30 to arrive. 12.30 comes, 12.30 in the morning, we're talking midnight. And there's three hours until flight, and so we're like, okay, there's no line, so we'll get through this pretty quickly, and we can still grab a few hours of shut-eye, right? We thought that this would be our plan. We thought. Turns out, by starting the check-in process at 12.30 a.m., we barely got to the gate before the plane boarded. There was just this string, as probably a lot of you have experienced, of just improbable delays one after another after another, to which I was wondering at this ticket counter, are we even going to make this flight? And despite the fact that we came into the airport like already exhausted after a week of camp, and you know how camp is, it's exhausting. And despite the fact that all these delays were happening at like 1 a.m. in the morning, 2 a.m. in the morning, like our team, I'm so proud of our team, they held it together. They maintained a good attitude, and we were able just to laugh off all of these delays that just kept happening to us. And I share this as like out of the gates because traveling, we all know this, traveling, especially if you go on a long international trip, can expose us for who we are on the inside, right? I saw it just when I came home. There was this airline tantrum video that dropped in the social media feed, right? We know these videos, right? And we chuckle. We chuckle because we know we're so close of doing the exact same thing as we're stuck in this airline with a hundred other people with two bathrooms and no legroom. Most things in our lives we can control, right? Or at least we think we can control, We can come to church on Sundays or city group or small groups during the week, and and we can control, for the most part, what others see of ourselves. But on a long international trip, with unplanned delays and and frustrating language issues, it can quickly feel that we're, we're spinning out of control. And as a result, sometimes what's inside of us just comes out, like it vomits out of ourselves, Right? As we continue in the life of David, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see something similar. 
But instead of observing common human responses to the very long and often frustrating international travel trips, we'll observe the common human responses to the presence of God showing up in our lives. Just as an international trip can just like squeeze us and reveal us for who we are, so too, and in greater ways, the presence of God can put the squeeze on us and reveal us for who we are as we come into his presence. When God's presence turns up, some, some of us may turn away at times in anger. Some of us may attempt to manipulate God in his presence for our gain. Some of us may tremble in fear, while others of us may just worship and delight in the presence of God. What about for you? For you right now, as you think about encountering God in his presence right now in this moment, what's your response? Our big idea, our direction of where we're going today is that worship, and I think we know this, but worship is the only proper response to God's holy presence in our lives. Worship is our only proper response to God's holy presence. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and worship you. We're thankful for this continued narrative of of David and his life that we may learn alongside of him. Lord, we pray that you would open your word, this story, to our hearts and our hearts to this story. Prune back any hedge of disbelief or distraction that we may see you most clearly. We love you, Jesus. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I encourage you to have it in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back. As we work through this narrative, we're going to see the presence of God showing up. Showing up in a lot of different individuals' lives. And so along the way, we're going to discover as we go through this narrative, seven different responses we as humans might have to the presence of God. You with me? Quick review in case you've missed a few weeks, been on vacation, been to Ecuador. Here's where we've been. Saul's dead. And now a violent battle after Saul dies, a violent battle between the, the men of David and the men of Saul, uh, they clash because they're, they're trying to find or, or have control of the throne. David ultimately wins. He's established as the new king. And as new king, he captures Jerusalem. He fortifies it. He builds for himself a great palace, and he begins to defeat his enemies, the Philistines. And, and Israel is now enduring a time of peace and, and prosperity under his reign. However, as we come into chapter 6, we see that David, he's not content that Israel just be politically stable or economically uh, healthy or militarily strong. David wants his people, God's people, to be spiritually right. Chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathers all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Okay, so what is this ark? And why does David send 30,000 chosen men to go get it? 
Well, when Israel left Egypt, God told them to construct a big wooden box and to overlay it with gold inside and out because that would be where God's presence would dwell. And the ark would dwell in the tabernacle, this this moving temple, in a secured place within the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And this ark, it was the only piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies. And inside the ark, you would find three things. This is great trivia, James, for your trivia night. But three things. One, a jar of manna, which signified to God's people of God's provision. Secondly, you'd find the Ten Commandments that signified God's law. And thirdly, Aaron's rod, which signified God's miraculous power. But we have to catch this, that so sacred was this holy of holies that only the high priest was allowed to enter this room. And this high priest could only enter the holy of holies one time of year, on the day of atonement, in which uh, the blood of the sacrificial lamb would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the space on top of the ark between the two cherubim that are mentioned here in our text. What all this means is this, that the ark is the visible symbol of God's presence to God's people. You with me? The ark is the visible symbol of God's presence to his people. Which makes you wonder, right, that given the significance of this ark, why don't God's people have the ark in their possession? Right? Well, to find out why, we have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel. And as you might remember, this is a time in 1 Samuel of war between the Philistines. And the people of God thought, hey, I got an idea. Let's just go take the ark into battle because then we're going to win because God's with us. And this brings us to our first response to God's presence in our lives. Our first response when we think of God's presence is that we can keep God around as a good luck charm. To the ancient Israelites, God's people viewed God's presence as nothing more than a good luck charm to get what they wanted, a four-leaf clover. But, but how often do we do the same thing in our lives? We might have financial issues or relationship issues or health issues. And so we think, well, I'm just going to rub God the right way, and then he'll, he'll produce what I need in my life. All my problems will go away. I'm not going to miss church for the next three months. I'm going to give an additional tithe at, at church for the next month. I'm going, to, I'm going to sign up and serve in toddlers. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to rub God the right way, and then I'll get what I want. But all of this is nothing more than a good luck charm, attempting to manipulate God to be on your side to get what you want. Response one. But we continue. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we know that not only does Israel lose that battle, but they, they lose the ark. The Philistines capture the ark, and they, they parade the ark into their city and place the, the God's ark into their temple besides their, their god, Dagon. But God's got a sense of humor. I think he's the first practical joker amongst us. The following morning, when the Philistine priests enter their temple, the statue of Dagon is what? Lying face down in front of the ark. So the priests set it back up. 
You know how the story goes, right? The next morning, the priests come back into their temple, and again, Dagon is face down in front of the ark, again. But this time, Dagon's head and hands are smashed. And not only is, is Dagon destroyed, uh, but the, the Philistines are now afflicted by terrible tumors, and the city is overrun with mice. Mice! That's like my least favorite animal. And there's this outbreak of suffering from these tumors and fear from these mice around the entire city and nation that so much so the leaders decide, hey, this ark has got to be taken back to Israel. And that brings us to our second response when we think about God's presence. That often fear leads to elimination. Fear can lead to elimination. The Philistines were terrified. They were highly uncomfortable with God's presence near them. So what do they do? They totally eliminate and remove God from their lives. And many of us feel the same thing. God might make us uncomfortable. Or we feel guilty before a holy God. And so we just decide the best course of action is just to eliminate God from from that aspect or all aspects of our life. We'll continue in the narrative. Again, send the ark back to Israel on a cart. And the ark winds up in the house of an Israelite named Abinadab. Love that name, Abinadab. That's 1 Samuel 5. Decades later, David in 2 Samuel 6 is saying that we just read, I want the ark back among God's people. And it's interesting, Saul reigned for 40 years, I believe, and he never wanted the ark. Saul was content letting the ark be stored away out of sight. But David says, no, I want the ark here. David believes the ark, God's presence, should reside in the midst of God's people, not locked away in a closet. So verse 3 of chapter 6. And they, David and his men, they they carried the ark of God on a new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzziah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and Cast uh, nets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of God. On a day we assume would be defined by joyous celebration is ultimately a day defined by anger and death. Like, come on now, what was Uzziah did there? Was it really that bad? What Wasn't Uzziah doing God a favor? Wouldn't any other wagon driver have done the very same thing with any other falling piece of valuable furniture? Shouldn't Uzziah hear God shouting down from heaven like, hey, thanks, son. Thanks for taking care of my golden box. 
Yet God strikes Uzziah down dead. Leaving, I think, all of us to wonder, like, God, I'm not sure the punishment, death, fits the crime, touching a golden ancient box. And we ask, is touching the ark of God really that big of a deal? Well, there's a couple things to consider. First, God had, in his law, given specific instructions about how the ark was to be transported. Only the Levites, only the Levites were allowed to transport the ark. And when they did, they were to to put long wooden poles through the rings on the side of the ark, enabling them to carry the ark without having to touch the ark as they, they lifted it up on their shoulders. And under no circumstance was even a Levite to touch the ark. Now, I just said this. Remember, anyone remember who carried the ark on a cart before? It wasn't an Israelite. It was the Philistines. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 5. You see, David and his men went about handling this most sacred item of God in an entirely pagan manner. Not good. Secondly, and more importantly, Uzziah is wholly unaware of his sinfulness. As Uzziah sees the ark falling to the ground, he no doubt thinks in his head, I'm right there with him. I should keep the ark from touching the ground because the ground is dirty. But as R.C. Sproul says on the screen here, the presumptuous, presumptuous sin of Uzziah was that he assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. Read that again to yourself. Uzziah assumes his hand is less dirty than the ground itself. But but if you think about it, the earth never really rejected God's authority. The earth has always obeyed the commands of God. It's not the ground or the dirt that might pollute the ark. It's the touch of man that can pollute the ark. Uzziah doesn't understand that, so he touches the ark and he dies. And I want to illustrate this because I really, we have to see this. We have to see this. Say you have a friend who's in the hospital. They've been, they've been sick with a, a serious infectious disease. And, and they have to put a, a catheter into their body to remove all of the waste to come out of the body. And you're visiting your friend and the doctor is there and and the doctor's replacing the catheter in front of you. And instead of throwing the catheter into the trash, the doctor turns and hands you the catheter unwashed and says, here you go. I've actually found this to be quite uh, uh, durable for a drinking straw. And you rightfully reply, that's disgusting, doctor. I will not use this as a drinking straw. To which the doctor replies, there's no more urine in it. You can drink whatever you want. To which you say, doctor, it's so stained with defilement, I'm not even going to touch it. Friend, the Bible says that that defilement is you and I. 
that stained straw is your sin. You see, Uzziah's punishment is not too severe for the crime. God is simply, hear this now, God is simply so holy that he cannot tolerate any impurity. The reason we do not at times understand the judgment of God is because we fail to see the true wickedness of our hearts. Response three. We often can have a lack of reverence for who God most truly is. And it's interesting to know that Uzziah was either the son or the grandson of Abinadab, which means he grew up with the ark in his home. And it appears that over time, he became just familiar with the ark, that he, he lost any sense of the sacredness of it. All sense of awe and reverence for what the ark represented was lost for him. He should have, of all the people, known God's requirements of transporting the ark. And he'd been around this ark his entire life. But isn't this so true for us as well? Especially for those of us who grew up in the church. Or we've been in the church for a while. We, we begin at times to regard God with such with meager sense of awe and reference. Becoming so familiar with God that we begin to approach God in our own way, not in God's way. And we lose a lack of reverence for who God truly is. But let's continue. Verse 8, David gets angry. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzziah. David looks at God in this moment and says, really God? He was only trying to do you a favor. David gets angry at God for what he perceives as an unusually harsh judgment and that anger turns into fear. Verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Anger turns to fear, and fear turns into David concluding that securing God's presence, it might not just be a good idea. And therefore, we see that David completely abandons his plan of bringing the ark back into the center of God's people. Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gideite, for three months. Don't, don't lose sight of what's happening here. David's angry at God. And David's concluded life might just be better without God. So David abandons God, literally. He leaves the ark, God's presence, with somebody else. And he moves on. He returns back to his life. And this can at times be a response that we have towards God. Response number four. The anger we might have or fear that we might have of God can, can lead to abandonment of God. We, we've seen that David chose not to do things God's way as he went about transferring or transporting this ark. But God's word was clear, abundantly clear of how the ark was to be transported. 
And yet David fails to follow God's word. And when the outcome turns poorly, when the outcome turns out poorly for David, David doesn't necessarily blame himself, he blames God. How often do we do the same thing? God's truth with how we've been called to live according to God's eternal word. And when things don't go the way we want them to go, we get angry. We get mad. We blame God. Rather than blaming ourselves or or taking responsibility for the ways in which we fail to live according to God's prescribed ways, we at times, like David, get angry and believe life might just be better without God. We continue. As I just read, David abandons this ark and he hands it off to this guy named Obed-Edom. And within months, the text tells us that Obed-Edom and his family are greatly blessed by God. I'd love to know what that meant, literally. But it must have been so remarkable that word reaches David's ears in Jerusalem. And it's this blessing It's this blessing that God bestows on this man and his family that awakens and stirs David's faith back in God. Causing David to say, hey, I'm going to make another go of bringing the the ark back to Jerusalem. But this time I'm going to do it in the ways in which God prescribed. And we, we can read through that narrative as David and the rest of God's people dance in this joyous celebration in return of the ark to their city. But there's one person who's not so thrilled about the return of the ark. Michael, David's wife, Saul's daughter. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Notice Michael's relationship to this joyous celebration of the return of the ark. Where is she? She's in the palace looking out of a window upon this parade, upon this celebration. Why, why isn't she a participant? She should have been in the streets rejoicing in the rest of God's people, of God's presence, the ark returning to the city. But instead, she peeks out of a window and is embarrassed by David's worship of God. It leads us to response number five, that our pride prevents authentic worship of who God is. That pride prevents authentic worship of God. You can remember that Michael loved David the warrior. She also looked out the window another time and saw David returning, having killed his ten thousands, and she fell in love with David, right? Remember that? But Michael could not get behind the idea of David the worshiper. It embarrassed her. Michael's problem, very much like her father, King Saul, was pride. David, on the contrast, he's dealt with his pride. He's recognized that his way of transporting the ark was done in air, and he's humbled himself to God's way, submitting himself under God's commands. And And now, as a result, he's dancing in the streets. He's dancing in his undies, right? Thank you. There's so much I want to say. 
And Zach's not here. Maybe it's a, no, okay. (laughs) But he's dancing in the streets without a care in the world what anyone might think. For he knows and understands the mercy and love of God his Father bestowed to him. And he says so himself in verse 21. I celebrate before the Lord. Not anyone else before the Lord. Critics of true worshipers will always be proud spectators, not humble participants. For they'll be far more concerned about what others may think rather than what God thinks. We continue by contrasting, finally, two different people who both possessed the ark in their home. Abinadab and Obed-Edom. Abinadab, as you recall, was, was given this ark by the Philistines after they decided it was too terrifying to have the presence of God near their lives. And from what I can gather, the ark of God resided in the home of Abinadab for at least four decades. Some would say up to 70 years. And yet in all of those years, there's absolutely no mention of God's blessing extended to Abinadab. Which at face value, it doesn't ring any alarm bells for for at least me. Until we contrast that with Obed-Edom. The ark was only in the home of Obed-Edom for three months. Three months. And yet his home was so blessed that that blessing made front page headlines capturing the attention of David the king in his palace in Jerusalem. Response six. A response we often have to God's presence in our lives is just ho-hum. Over 40 years, the ark resided in the home of Abinadab, and yet no blessing of God is ever mentioned. Like, I can imagine someone coming over to Abinadab's home and say, hey, hey, dude, like, what's that on the coffee table? And Abinadab's like, oh, what, um, what do you call that thing? It's, uh, oh, the ark of God. But honestly, I got it because it brought, like, good energy into the room. Don't you think, like, this goes well with everything else I got decorated in the home? How true the story of Abinadab can be for us. That we can be in the very presence of God, even in this moment right now, and have it glance right off of us. All of us can be so good at going through religious motions, going to church, going to small group, setting aside money, lip singing to the song, saying our prayers. And yet all that can really have no effect on our lives if it's nothing more than just religious rituals to be kept. Ho-hum. It's Sunday. Just another church service. But then, (laughs) there's Obed-Edom. The guy David stuck the ark with. In verse 11, it tells us that Obed-Edom is a Gideite. A Gideite is not a Jew. A Gideite is a Philistine. So David not only abandons the ark, but he abandons the ark to his enemy. 
An enemy who not too long ago was terrified of the ark and who couldn't get rid of the ark fast enough. But here's a Philistine. Obed-Edom has no issue of bringing the ark into his home. Even after knowing that the ark just caused someone to perish. Here's a man whose heart was right with God. The presence of God was not a threat to him. It was his delight. Response seven, delight in God. Obed-Edom was comfortable with God living in the midst of his home, and the Lord blessed him. And it was through this, through uh, Obed-Edom's comfortability with God's presence that really got David's heart right with the Lord. And he joins Obed-Edom in desiring once more the presence of God in his life and bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. We might think the story of Obed-Edom ends right here. But it doesn't. I love this. I absolutely love this. As we continue reading through this narrative in 1 Chronicles, as David establishes a system of worship in Jerusalem, guess who shows up again? Obed-Edom. And here's what's interesting. Those appointed as priests and musicians and treasurers and, and gatekeepers, all those involved in Jewish worship, they were exclusively of the tribe of the Levites. However, When it comes to appointing gatekeepers of the temple, an anomaly appears. Obed-Edom is appointed gatekeeper of the temple. And here's the deal. A doorkeeper is not a priest. A doorkeeper is like a janitor, right? It's the lowest position in connection with the temple. But hear this now. Obed-Edom preferred this low position within God's temple over any higher position outside of God's presence. Do you hear that? For Obed-Edom discovered it was worth it, whatever the cost, to be as near as possible to the presence of God, even if that meant only opening and closing the doors to the temple. Perhaps... Obed-Edom inspired the psalmist. You guys know this. A single day in God's courts is better than the thousands elsewhere. I'd rather be what? A gatekeeper in the house of my God than live the good life in the homes of the wicked. Obed-Edom had something to teach David and us too. That God's presence is not a threat but is our delight. Do you find the presence of God your delight this morning? Do you agree with how this psalm is written that a single day in God's courts is better than a thousand's elsewhere? That to be a lowly gatekeeper of the Lord like Obed-Edom is far better than to live a good or desirable life as thought of by the world. One ark, yet seven different 
responses. And I think at times we find ourselves up and down this pendulum, don't we? But ultimately, worship, delighting in God, is our only proper response to God's holy presence in our lives. And at any point where we find ourselves here, we can always be honest before God and repent and return and find our delight in Him. And here's my closing question for you, is what is your worship? What does your worship tell others about the value of God? What does your worship tell others about the value of God? Worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. We come here and sing songs. Worship is our total response to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Worship is how we live, how we spend our money, what we do with our time, the values we teach our children, how we treat the poor, how we care about the things that God cares about and and hate the things that God hates, like sin and injustices. Think about this. What does your worship tell others about the value of God? For your worship makes to others a statement about the worth of God to you. Your worship puts on display the greatness of God for the world to see. Let's pray. Father God, we do worship you this morning. We stand in awe of who you are, recognizing and not even fully seeing our own wickedness in our hearts but with an understanding, Lord, that you came to save us and you've given us redemption and hope and a new life through your life, death, and resurrection. Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning who has yet to see you as their Savior and Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would draw them to yourself. And for those of us who have placed our faith in you, Jesus, I pray that we would leave this space and time encouraged and reminded of our delight in you, that you're not a threat, that you are our delight, and that we would gladly and willingly join Obed-Edom as a gatekeeper of the temple. In your name we pray, amen.